Well, I'd like to speak a little about Yom Kippur. Because obviously that's what's right around the corner. And obviously the main idea of Yom Kippur is right, is to do tshuva. Now Yom Kippur, of course, has a basis in Judaism. It's part of the history of Judaism. Because after the Chet Regal, the sin of the golden calf, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shemayim, and he was there for 40 days to beg God not to destroy the Jews, to kill them. Then he went, came back down, and of course, he took the Egel Azov, and he ground it up, and he killed thousands of them, and died, and so on. You know, and then he went back up, uh, to make sure that the Bansham, uh still keeps them as the nation. That's another, that's another round of 40 days. And then he went back up to make sure that the Rebbeinu doesn't, uh, you know, include another nation together with the Jews. In any case, uh, that's about 120 days. And from Yudzai and Tammuz until... Yom Kippur is 120 days. So he came down on Yom Kippur, or on the 10th day of Tishrei. And interestingly enough, the Rebbeinu forgave the Jews. Now what that really means is the Kapora, because of the tefillah of Moshe. You know, and, um, but, the, but the idea is that even though he forgave the Jews, what it also means is that, you know, it's not a complete kapora. Because like the Bershom says, in, in, in every punishment that happens to the Jews because of the sins of the Jews, the Bershom, or God, he adds a small amount of that kapora for the cheto ego. So in a certain sense, we've been suffering from the cheto ego, right, for 3,300 years. That's a long time and so on. But the main idea is that the 10th day of Tishrei became a day of Kapora. And that's the historical, what's called historical antecedent of uh, the uh, Kapora of the Jews on the 10th day of Tishrei. And that became Yom Kippur. <clears throat> now, one of the things that I mentioned previously, and I think there was Shanashir, is in order to make sure that anybody who does tshuva, and no matter what the level of sincerity of the tshuva is, can be accepted. Because there's no kitruk, and I mentioned that the gematria of Hasatan, the Satan, is 364. Because on one day of the year, which is Yom Kippur, the Satan does not prosecute. So he maintains his job as tempter, Yitzhahara. He maintains his job as executioner, Tzmachamovas. But his job as a prosecuting attorney, a heavenly DA, is suspended for that one day. And therefore, as a result of that, since there's no kitrug at all, therefore anybody who does a tshuva, you know, which normally during the regular year, that tshuva could be rejected because maybe it's, it's not really sincere or the, maybe the person is not even sure. He's thinking about doing tshuva, whatever. Normally that would be rejected. But on Yom Kippur, it's accepted because there's no prosecution against it. 
That's a very important idea. Therefore, uh, I have to uh, stress that whatever level of tshuva you do, do something. Uh, don't let Yom Kippur go by without doing tshuva at some level. In other words, even if you say, well, I, I keep doing this, right? So I really think I should stop or at least begin to wind it down, you know, do that. In other words, don't let Yom Kippur go by without any tshuva whatsoever. That's a classic mistake. Because like I say, the amnesty, maybe that's the best word for it, the amnesty for Chatoim is completely open. So therefore, you have to do tshuva at no matter what level you think you could do it. You need to do tshuva. That's a very important idea. Why? Because there's no kitruk. There's no prosecution against the tshuva that you will do. Now, tshuva, which is a very important concept, obviously, is a tremendous gift of God. Because if a person sins, then he sinned. You know? And if you think about it, when a person sins, he doesn't sin with one idea. There are several violations that a person does. The first violation is that he disobeyed a command against God. That is a sin. That's a violation. The second idea is that you have damaged yourself. You create a pagam. It's some type of a defect in yourself as a result of your sin, whatever that be. Whether it means that there's a certain light of the spheres which is now blocked by what's called the clipper, which I had mentioned. It's a blockage of a certain ore that comes to you as a result of the spheres, but it's blocked because of the sin, you see. So that is a damage to you. That is also a sin against God because God doesn't want his children to be damaged. So in, in many ways you are inflicting, you know, uh, something against the will of God. So not only are you doing the sin which is against His will, you are being damaged. You're His child. You see? So that itself is a damage, a violation to God. So that's the second thing, you see. And the third thing that you're doing, right, is God now has to punish you. God doesn't want to punish Christ Israel, right? I mean, they're his children. But that's what happens. So therefore we see there are three different sins against God when you do any given sin. You see? You violate, you rebel against his commandment. You damage yourself spiritually. And God has to punish you in order to atone for your sin. And that's why it says, right, it uses three expressions of kapora, right? Mahalonu, forgive us, kapolonu, atone for us, and salachlonu, you know, uh, overlook, forgive, whatever. Because really there are three different things that you do to violate God's will, you see. So it's not one idea, it's three. 
ideas that you need to seek an atonement for. Important idea, and so on. <clears throat> now, another very important concept. What is tshuva really? Which is very important to understand. What is the consequence of sin, really? Well, like I just mentioned, the consequence of sin is those three things. You rebel against God, one. You damage yourself, a pagam, a defect, which is some denial of the spheres, the incredible energy of the spheres, to you and Neshama, it's blocked, it's two. And God has to punish you, it's three. But there's a fourth consequence, which is very, very important. And that's really what tshuva is all about. What is that? Well, look at the word tshuva itself. Teshuva doesn't mean repentance per se. Teshuva means return, you see. Because one of the things that you damage is your relationship with God. That's right. Imagine you violate the will of a king. And let's assume you're good friends with him. But for some reason you turned against him. And he finds out about it. Okay. It's the same idea. You rebelled. You are now denied the privilege of being close to the king. And he has to punish you. But what you really do is destroy the relationship that you have with that king. You see, that's the real damage of chet, sin. Is that your relationship with God is damaged. Your yachas, your relationship. So in other words, you have created what's called a richok, a distance. You used to be close to God, you see. But the sin has made you distant from God. That itself has all kinds of repercussions. Because in the end, you know, if you take a look, if you remember in Bracious by Odom Mauritian, Cain and Hevel, you know, Cain killed Hevel, that we know, right? And But what, what, what Cain said is Cain did tshuva, and that's why he was not killed. But he said a very interesting statement, and I will be concealed from your face. Wait a minute. You know, what does that mean, I will be concealed from your face? What Cain was saying is the essential damage when a person sins. That I will be concealed from your face means you're not going to look at me. You're not going to care about me. You see, in other words, my special relationship that I had from you is over. This is terrible. Because without that special relationship, we can't exist further. We're finished. We are completely, totally dependent on God. Absolutely. And if God decides to turn away his face from us, where well, he says to us, okay, that's what you want to do, then... I'm not going to, you know, in, in any way uh, relate to you and, and, and take care of you. That's the greatest damage of all. I mean, we have to be frightened about that conclusion. So Cain said, And from your face I will be concealed, which means you're going to turn away from me. And that, right, that my sin is greater than I can bear. 
what he was saying is that the consequences of the sin is so great that I, I can't even bear it. So in a certain sense, he was saying, right, that, look, you might as well take me away, kill me, because I, I cannot live this way. That's tshuva. So what Cain identified is the essence of tshuva. I will be concealed from you, you see? And what he also identified, that my sin is so great that I cannot bear it. He did tshuva because he said, you're right, it was a sin. I am wrong. You see? So he did the two very fundamental ideas. When he said, I cannot bear my sin, it's too heavy for me, he identified his actions as a sin. That's called vidui. That's what he did. And then when he said, you know, you know, I will be concealed from you, that's basically a charoto, a tremendous uh, regret of what I've done, you see. So it's amazing that even though Cain committed one of the greatest of all Averis, which is to murder somebody, I mean, Hevel's dead, you know. God forgave him. He lightened the, the sin. So he just said, you have to wander, you see. Uh, you have to wander. That is, and, and that's what he did. He put a sign on his forehead, and he wandered, and eventually was killed by Lemech. But whatever the idea. So Cain identifies the real concept of tshufa, which is what? Which is to return. That's what the word tshufa really means. To return to God. Of course, the way to do that is by saying that I will not sin anymore. I will not anger God. I will not rebel against Him. On the contrary, I will love Him and so on. That is the greatest way to return. And that's really what you want to do. You see. So, what you're doing is not just a kapo, it's not a, 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 a vidoy. You're not just saying, well, I, I'm, forgive me for this sin. You see. For this particular sin which itself is very commendable but the real thing you want to say is what that I don't want to sin it's not this sin please help me stay away from the state of sinning you see I don't want to be in that state you see where I'm always sinning so we're not referring here to an individual or specific sin necessarily we're referring to the whole concept that people sin, and they're in a state of sinning, you see. So you want to direct your tshuva to that, that you beg God not only to forgive you for individual sins that you've done, but that he should help you avoid or stop sinning in general. Because the real damage that happens is called rihuk that you have distanced yourself from God to the extent of your sin. And we cannot even imagine, really, what the damage is. You see, we, we don't really know what that is when a person sins and God decides, in a certain sense, to cut him off. The worst thing about Kores is, you see, because what Kores is, cut off, is a rechok. And that is the greatest harm that can come to a person when God cuts you off, you see. 
And what is tragic today is that there are so many people that are cut off from God. And there are so many people that don't care. You know, that's the world we live in. We live in a world that's really the pits. The really the pits. Because many people out there, they're not spiritual. They don't care if they have a relationship with God or not. That's the world. They are so attracted and so immersed in materialism, you see, and all kinds of uh, sinning and so on, you know, materialism and, and honor and glory, wealth and pleasure and all that stuff, and, uh, and the conquest of other people and so on, that they, they, they just don't care. But in any case, that's the essence of tshuva, to return to God, which of course is done by trying to get a kapora for your sins. But like I say, the real idea is to in some way ask God to help you stop sinning in general. Very important idea. <clears throat> you see. Now, what is also important is this. I will tell you something very interesting. We know that there's three ways to do the tikkun. The first way to do the tikkun is mitzvahs, commandments. The second way is tshuva, which I'm talking about, what it really is. And the third way is yisurin. There's a great deal to talk about yisurin. But I'd like to tell you a very interesting true story about what the real meaning of yisurin and more important, what our attitude should be. Uh, everybody heard of Napoleon, right? We all know who Napoleon was. Napoleon Bonaparte, the Emperor of France, right? Uh, who really shook up the whole world. In any case, he was warring with some country, which he usually was doing. He's almost always at war. And he realized that he doesn't know the strategy of the other country. So he figured, you know what I'll do? I'm going to do this. And as far as I know, this is a true story. He went and disguised himself. So obviously he doesn't look like Napoleon. And he took a general with him, and they crossed the border or into the other, the enemy camp. You see, into the enemy territory. And what he did is he went into an inn where everybody's getting drunk. You know what soldiers do when they have their time off? They're getting drunk. So he figured, maybe I'll go in. And he himself went in with the general to hear what the soldiers are saying, because since they're drunk, they may easily disclose the strategy of what they're going to do tomorrow. An interesting kind of idea. So that's what he did. He and the general went into a, a tavern, an inn, or we call it a bar today, and he took a back seat, obviously, even though he was disguised. He didn't want to be uh, noticeable, you see. Anyway, he was back there, and getting a lot of information. Because these guys were drunk, you know, and they're all blurting out, yeah, we're going to get that guy, we're going to get Napoleon, we're going to get his army, because we're going to do this and this. And he's picking up all this kind of information, you see, which is incredible. Anyway, there's a guy at the bar who's obviously drunk, and he turns around, you know, he's looking around at the, at the place, different people and so on, and all of a sudden, he notices Napoleon and the general 
sitting off in the corner. And all of a sudden, he says to himself, hey, wait a minute, that's Napoleon. I remember him because I was a prisoner in his place and I got out finally. And he went by to review the troops. And through the bars in my window, I was able to see him. That's him. So all of a sudden, the guy starts screaming. He jumps up uh, and he starts screaming, hey, guys, that's Napoleon sitting in the back there. And obviously, when you mention the word Napoleon, I mean, there's over a hundred guys in that bar, all enemy soldiers. And when he's screaming, that's Napoleon, you could imagine what's happening. All of a sudden, everybody turns around and looks at the table of Napoleon, and they begin looking at him. And this guy is saying, that's Napoleon. So one of the other drunk soldiers says, that's impossible. Why would Napoleon ever come into a bar of the enemy? It's impossible. So the guy says, look, I don't know why, but I'm telling you, he is Napoleon. I recognize him. I saw him. And he says, what happened? Like I said, because through the bars of my prison, he reviewed the troops. And I looked at him, and I saw him. He was close enough where I could see him. And I'm telling you guys, that's Napoleon. Now, you can imagine what was going through the mind of Napoleon. He's finished. He's what's called in English dead meat. That's it. Or they're going to capture him, obviously. There are hundreds of guys in that bar. And take him to the enemy, and of course they're going to kill him. You see, by denying a leader of the other, uh, the other nation. So Napoleon, you can imagine what he was doing. He was going crazy because he knew it was over. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the general who accompanied Napoleon, who was obviously one of his generals, he gets up and starts screaming at Napoleon. He says, what? You don't want to pay me back for the money that I lent you? And he walks over and he stands up from the table, goes over to Napoleon, who sat at the other end, and he raises him. Now, we know Napoleon was pretty short. He's famous for that, right? With his hand in his jacket. Short guy. He takes him, lifts him up, and he punches him in the face. You see? And he starts screaming at him, what, you dare do that? And he throws Napoleon to the floor, and he starts beating him up on the floor. It's incredible to watch. And the other guys, the whole bar, are looking at Napoleon. There was guys beating up Napoleon. So one of them screams out and says, that's impossible for him to be Napoleon. Nobody would ever do that to him. It's incredible. So what do they do? They all turn back, right? And continue whatever they were doing. Meanwhile, the general picks up Napoleon after he's really beaten him quite well. And they both slink out of the bar. And they go across to the regular lines, their country, their nation. So Napoleon, of course, he's all beaten up, you can imagine. And he goes back to his major royal tent, whatever. And, but the general says to himself, I'm finished. I just beat up the emperor of France, right? I mean, forget about it. He's, 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 he's uh, as they say he's, uh, in Yiddish, he's a fartiger. He's finished. 
And he only knows that, of course, what's going to happen as soon as Napoleon gets his act together, he's going to call him, pronounce a death sentence. What happens, of course, a couple of hours later, there's a whole, you know, retinue of guards, right? Like a hundred uh, soldiers come to the general's tent and they say, you are commanded to appear before Napoleon. And he knows what that means. It's over. So they take him, stands in front of Napoleon. And Napoleon says to him, before I pronounce sentence on you for what you did to me, I want to ask you one question. When you were beating me in the bar, what do you think I was thinking? When you were beating me, what do you think I was thinking? Right? Obviously, I'm thinking while you're beating me. What do you think that was? So the general said, well, obviously what you were thinking is if I ever get out of this, I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill my general for what he's doing. So Napoleon says to the general, you're wrong. That's not what I was thinking. Because I recognize your ruse. What were you doing? You were trying to convince them that I couldn't be Napoleon because Napoleon would never allow somebody to beat him like that. You see? That was your strategy, you see? And as you were beating me, I realized that your strategy was working. So what do you think I thought of? I said, hit me harder. Because I realized that if you don't hit me hard enough, they will not be convinced. So I said to myself, you must hit me harder, please. I was thinking that. Because the whole strategy was to convince them that Napoleon would never allow this. That's what I was thinking. So not only the fact that you were hitting me, thank God for that, but I was begging in my mind that you should hit me harder to convince everybody. Therefore, I'm going to pronounce sentence on you. Because what you really did is you saved my life. Therefore, I'm going to give you whatever you want. You want a palace, whatever you want in France, I will grant you. This is an incredible story. It's a true story, by the way. But it illustrates a very important idea. Because Napoleon recognized that the only way to save his life is if he gets beaten up. Or else the, the people, the soldiers, will kill him. It's the same thing. We go to heaven and we have all kinds of sins, right? And who's screaming at us? The Sutton. The Sutton is screaming at us, the Kitruk, the prosecutions, and he wants us to die, you see. What does the Bershom do? He starts beating us. Because that beating will, is a strategy to remove the suffering that we have, you see, to remove the sin that we have. That is really what suffering is all about. If we realize that without the suffering, we could not survive, just like Napoleon. We could not survive, you see. Then how grateful would we be that the Bansham is punishing us? But remember, the only reason why he's punishing us because we haven't done tshuva. And this is the tshuva, which is a very important idea. <clears throat> I want to tell you one more idea, right? What a person can do, how he should live his life. And this is true 
especially for people who work for a living. <clears throat> there was a very great Rebbe called the Zvila Rebbe. He was about my face, about my fate. In other words, he was a miracle worker. <clears throat> a very great man, this Zvila Rebbe. In fact, one of the interesting stories about him is that when he was in Russia, he was known as a Bamoy face, a miracle worker. That's how great he was. His name was Shlomo's, Shlomo from Zvil. Shlomo from Zvil. And he's buried on Arazesim, if you would like to know. What happened was, is that one of his mispalim, because he had a shul, one of his mispalim came home, and he found a Russian dead in his kitchen. Obviously, the guy in some way was stealing from his house, and for some reason, he probably had a heart attack. And the guy dropped dead in his kitchen. And he was frightened, because that could start a pogrom. You know what they do. Accuse the Jews of baking matzahs with blood. All kinds of terrible things. So he panicked. He didn't know what to do. There's a dead Russian in his house who obviously was a thief. And he died in the middle of his thievery. So he comes running back to the Zvila Rebbe. And he tells him, what should I do? Because this can start a pogrom. So the Zvila Rebbe says, don't worry. He gets up, goes over to his wife's chalant, which she made for Shabbos, because it was on Shabbos. Right? And he tells the guy, take this chalant that my wife made, which I am going to eat from. What I want you to do is take this chalant, go back home, and put it in the mouth of the goy, and then stand back. That's exactly what the guy did. He took the Zvila Rebbe's chalant, the Shlemkame Zvil, his chalant, he goes back to his house, right? And he opens up the dead man's mouth. Right? And he puts the chant in the mouth. All of a sudden, the dead man arose. He got up. It's incredible. And the guy walked out of his house into a forest. And then he just lay down and he was dead. It's incredible. That's the nest that the Zvil, uh, of Zvil was capable of. In any case because I wanted to just tell you what type of a person he was. He used to work for a living. He lived in Eretz. So what happened eventually is he left Russia, obviously, and he went to Eretz Israel, but he concealed himself. He went in the back of a shul. Nobody knew who he was. And then one day, some guy comes in, looks around, and he sees the Zvila Rebbe, Rabbi Shlimka, in the back, and he screams out, hey, you guys, do you know who that is? That's the Zvila Rebbe. And then all of a sudden, as they say, his cover was blown, and everybody ran to him for brochas, yeshuas, everything. I mean, that's how, how great he was. In any case, he used to work for a living, which is interesting. So one of his chassidim once went over to him, and he said the following. He said, Rebbe, what is the difference between you and I? Right? You, I work for a living, and you work for a living. I say Kiddush, and you say Kiddush. So how come you're the Rebbe, and I'm the Chassid? Interesting question. In other words, you're really doing the same thing I do. So what makes you the Rebbe, and what makes me the Chassid? That's really a very interesting question. So Rabbi Shlemke from Zvil, the Zvila Rebbe, said, 
a very profound idea. He said, I will tell you the difference. When I am at work, because I do work, right? I am thinking of the Kiddush. When you are saying Kiddush, you're thinking of work. You see? You know what? You're thinking, well, did I make enough money this week? Do I have to have less inventory? You're thinking of your work. And I'm thinking when I make, make in working, I think of Kiddush. That's the basic difference between us both. Because when I am working, then the work is a distraction to Dvekus, to thinking of God and Ruchnius. Because that's really where I want to be. When you are saying Kiddush, that's a distraction for where you want to be. Because you really want to be working and making money. That's the difference. What he was saying is very profound. In other words, it's not where you are or what you're doing that defines you as a person. It's where your real interest lies, you see. Where your tremendous devotion lies. That's what defines you. And therefore, when I'm working, he's saying, I'm thinking of the Rabbani Shlodim. I'm thinking of Ruchnius. I'm thinking of how I'd love to do mitzvahs, chesed, and be close to God. When you are saying Kiddush, you're not thinking of Kiddush. You're thinking of your work, because that's really where you want to be. That's really who you are. That is a very important idea. Why do I say this? There are many people who say, listen, what's going to become of me? You know, I've got to go to work. I have to make a living, support my family, or whatever, just to have, you know, the ability to pay the bills and so on. You know, I'll never really become anything. I'm, it's over with. I'll never become a, an El Chayid, you know, a real a sincere, uh, devout Jew. It's impossible. You see? Why? Because I work for a living. I'm not in yeshiva anymore. You know, I'm not a rabbi. I'm not really a Talmud Chochem. So what they do is they all give up. Deep down, they give up. Because they think that there's no way that they can ever break the bonds of a material world. You see, what the Zvila Rebbe said is that a tremendous mistake, you should know. Because the essential definition or essence of a person it's not what he does, what he has to do. It's what he wants to be, where he wants to be. That's the greatness of any Jew. Therefore, any Jew can imitate what the Zvila Rebbe said. It doesn't make a difference if you have to go to work every day, right? Okay, fine. But even if you can't learn and do all the mitzvahs that somebody, let's say, will be free of this, you can be incredibly great because you want to learn and you want to be there, but you have to work. That is the essence of the Avoido. That's what he was saying. The essence of the Avoido is not merely to do the mitzvah, which of course is critical, very important. But the essence of the Avoido is to want to do the mitzvah, to want to be the Talmud Chochem, to want to no shas to want to serve God and to want to be close to God. That is the essential thing that God wants. Because many times we want to do something, we can't. 
And as it says in Masech Tekidushim, that if somebody wants to do a mitzvah, but he can't because he is prevented from external reasons, then God considers it as if he did the mitzvah, which is an incredible idea. So what do we see? What God wants is the rotsun. He wants the will, the desire of a person. What does he want to be? And in the end, that's the critical concept, you see. And that's what the Zvil Rebbe said, you see. And in many ways, that's the message of the Baal Shem Tov. That's what Hasidus really is. That every Jew has an unbelievable worth, an unbelievable avodah, and that is to want to serve God with one's full heart. That's what the essential idea is. So, it's like the Raivad said, and I mentioned this, I think, in the Rosh Hashanah Shir, that what God looks for is, is not necessarily, you know, that you have charata for a sin. What he looks for, that's what determines who he gives life. Are you on board with me or not? Like Moshe Rabbeinu said by the Cheto Egel, Mil Hashem Olai, are you with me or not? You see, it's, it's interesting. And, 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 you know, when you think about that, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't say, who did the sin of, you know, of worshipping the golden calf and who didn't. He didn't say that, you know. What he said was, who is with God? And that certainly can be interpreted as, okay, you made a mistake. That's true, you know. But who in the end has unbelievable harata and wants to be with God? So that's the essential struggle that God wants. And this is what the Raivat says, that on Yom Kippur, the uh, atonement and the signing of the book is for the person that wants to serve God with all his heart. And even if he is prevented externally because of necessities, God realizes, obviously, for whatever reason, that he wants this person to work. But the main thing, the main emphasis that God wants is this person wants to be an Ever Hashem. He wants to be a servant of God. Well, that's it. Those are the important ideas that I want to convey before Yom Kippur. What the true tshuva is to return to God. Because that's the greatest damage. That's the rechok, the distance that you want to repair. You see. Second thing, is that no matter what happens to us, there's always a very important reason, as I brought you from this, the concept of Napoleon, that even Yesurin will save you, you see. And then I mentioned now, the essential idea is that you want to be with God, you want to be a servant of God, and obviously that means that you, what you will do is, the, is to try to do whatever is possible in that way. So don't be despair, you know, dismayed, that you have to go to work, you have to make a living, so therefore you can't spend time learning, you know, or doing mitzvahs or chesed. No. If you want to do that, if you long to do the Ratzna Boireim, then that is the greatest madrega. And that's what the Zvila Rebbe said to his chesed. A very profound concept, you see. So take these things to heart, think about them, and ask yourself, what can I do to be an Ever Hashem more than what I did last year? And like I said, what can I do to advance the tikkun 
of creation. That's what you want to do. That should be your primary goal and your primary reason. And if that's the case, then you will clearly have a tremendous year, you know, in that, in that, in that uh, service. Any questions? Um, Any questions? So, so this should this should this should be our main because usually on Yom Kippur um, they say to try to take on um, something new, uh, a new mitzvah during the year, and try to take that on on yourself. Um, but from what I'm understanding is that it's not necessarily that only more of even doing something that you already do, but just do it better. Correct. It's the mindset. Yes. It's the mindset that's the critical thing. In other words, if you change your mindset that I want to serve God, I really want to have my life based on the desire to serve God, to advance the Tikkun process, that's the critical concept of tshuva. And I'll tell you something very important since you raised that question. Okay. This is a very important idea. Why is it that people, you know, you go through Yom Kippur, you do tshuva, whatever, whatever you can do and so on. And then all of a sudden, the next day, you're back to your old self. What's the problem here? Why is it so easy to slide back? And after a couple of days... You know, you're back to your old self. You wouldn't even know that. You're just Passium Kippur. I will tell you why. Uh, and it's a very important idea. There's a concept called cognitive dissonance in psychology. What it means is that if you do something which is contrary to your goal or to what you believe, you may do it for a while, but ultimately it will disappear you will cease doing it because you are dissonant cognitively. You are away or against what you really believe or want to do. The problem with everybody is that you do not change your goal. Everybody's goal remains the same, you know, to get on with life. And therefore, even though they may do something, it's different than their goal. You see, in certain ways, it confronts their goal. You see, it's contrary to their goal. So in the end, it disappears. Because a person will not ultimately go against his goals. Because it's dissonant from what he wants to do. And that's why it's critical. You need to change your goals. That's what you need to change. In other words, you may decide, well, I'm going to do this mitzvah, or I'm going to stop doing that sin. Right? But your goal remains the same. To be the same regular guy to enjoy life. So guess what? You're not going to wind up doing the mitzvah. And you continue doing the sin. The critical concept of tshuva is you have to align the goal to the mitzvah. You have to change the goal. Then you are not dissonant at all with your life's desire is. 
And that's why the Raivat says, that's what he means, that the key is the struggle. The key is that you want to struggle to remain and be with God. That means that becomes your goal. Therefore, any tshuva that you do for any sin or whatever, right, that will be in consonance with your goal, and therefore it will last. But if you don't change your goal, your direction, right, the objective, then even if you do tshuva, it will only be temporary, you see. That's why God places such a heavy emphasis on, well, what do you really want to do? Mila Shemilai, who is with God? See, and the rival is 1,000% correct. You know, it's funny that it's a cognitive, he said cognitive dissonance a thousand years before the psychologists came up with the concept. You see, <clears throat> and that's what I'm saying. If you want your tshuva to really last and not, and not just lip service, uh, you really have to change your goals, your objectives. You know, what you really want to do with your life. What direction you really want to go in? And that is to do the mitzvahs, to do chesed, not to sin, but basically to really go in the direction that God wants you. You see, then you become an Ever Hashem. Then any change in your behavior will become permanent. So that's a very important idea. Now, one more very important idea. Now, the Sutton knows this. I will tell you what the greatest strategy of the Sultan is. <clears throat> and this is what he does to everybody. Here's what it is. Okay. I'm going to, you know, only, uh, you really could, uh, un unclothe sort of the real hidden strategy of the Sultan. The Sultan knows that people are always concerned about their lives. You see. You see. But what the Sultan knows is in some way, you cannot get this guy to think about his life. Because if he starts thinking about his life, then ultimately he's going to start saying to himself, well, what's happening with me in Judaism? What's happening with me and my purpose in life? What am I doing? Just wasting my time. You see, that's called a cheshbon ha-nefesh. Cheshbon ha-nefesh, which is to reckon one's life in terms of his, in terms of his actions. Now, the Sutton knows that ultimately, given enough time, everybody will think about this. Because people are always looking for meaning. That's the most important quest for a person. What is the meaning of my existence? And based on that, they will begin thinking about what they're doing, you see. And the Sutton doesn't want this. That's the worst thing that can happen, you see. But I want to tell you something. What does the Sutton do? And he's brilliant in this strategy. You can't believe how brilliant he is. He says, I have to distract them. I can't leave them with free time because then they can begin thinking about this. I have to distract them, get them thinking and doing other things so they'll never have time to think about Cheshman Nefesh, about where they're going in life what the meaning of life is. How? <clears throat> well, the greatest thing the Sutton has ever done, right, is what we are now experiencing. The Internet. This is the problem with the Internet. It's one of the greatest distractions ever made. 
because everybody's so busy on it, right? They don't think about what should be they, what they should be doing. And I'll tell you something even greater than the internet, although it really includes the internet. The smartphone. The smartphone is the single greatest device ever created by the Sultan to distract you. Everybody's always looking at their smartphone. Whenever you look at people, they're all playing around with their smartphone. You see? Well, if they're playing around with their smartphone and they're looking at the internet through the smartphone, of course they're not going to think about themselves, about their lives, about the direction of their lives. You see? It's just unbelievable. You know, it used to be, you know, it used to be that a guy would have some free time, you know, if he's driving in his car or he's somewhere, you know, somewhere where there's nobody around. Maybe he would have time to think about his life. Instead, he pulls out a smartphone, you know, and he's on it. There are people who are on their smartphones, you know, it's just kind of almost three quarters of the day. There are people who can't go to sleep unless their smartphone is on. It's astounding what the Sutton has created, a device that will completely engage you to look at it. And therefore, you're distracted. You don't think about your life, you see, because you have no time. That's the strategy of the Sutton. If you find all yourself all of a sudden looking at your smartphone, playing around with the internet, or doing all kinds of things that distract you, then you should know that's basically the Sutton exercising his strategy, you see. That's why you have to be careful. You have to take away time for yourself to think about who you are, why you are, what your purpose is, where are you going, how much have you achieved so far, how much do you have yet to achieve, and the strategies or the possibilities that you need to engage in to get it done. But that requires thinking, you know, it requires thinking, because remember, it's a struggle. You are struggling against the Sutton. That is your enemy. <clears throat> so therefore, think about that. So I have told you what his greatest strategy is. And not only that, but also <clears throat> the concept uh, of, of besides the, the, the concept of uh, uh, thinking and so on, you know, uh, so I have shared with you these ideas, you see, and it's very important. And also the concept of goal changing, goal to modify your goal, because then any, any chuva you do will only be temporary. Anyway, these are the important ideas I think you should know before Yom Kippur. So I certainly wish everybody a, a, a successful Yom Kippur where everybody will walk out all freed from the Zoyama, from the Sultan and his machinations. And hopefully this year, God will have tremendously have Rachmanus on the Jewish people, and even on the world, actually, because the world is suffering to unbelievable division, hatred, and turmoil. We've never seen a world in such a state of turmoil, sinner, and hatred, and so on, and evil. All of these are dominant today. 
And hopefully God will look at the world and say, enough is enough. And I want to end it and bring the Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? Yes, I have a question. So, yes. is there a difference or is there a preference to work on mitzvot that are um, negative commandments or mitzvot that are positive commandments? Is there a difference? Well, a negative commandment, in a certain sense, is more serious than a positive. <clears throat> but I, I, I would not, I would not divide them. I think the major idea is to work on a mitzvah that you know you could do. And certain mitzvahs are obviously easier for people to do than other mitzvahs. So I think priority are, is for those mitzvahs that you can be successful easier than others. And I'll tell you why. Because. Only a success breeds success. That's the way it works. So when you do a mitzvah, you've created a mindset to do mitzvahs. And therefore, that will encourage you to do more mitzvahs. You see? And that is really what you want. So it's not only to do the mitzvah, but a success will give you the mindset to do another mitzvah, and then another mitzvah, uh, you see, and that is very important uh, because, because of the tremendous opposition to doing mitzvahs, which is Sutton is always bringing up, right? It is so important to develop a mindset to do any mitzvah, <coughs> even, <coughs> even if it's not as what you think, as important as other mitzvahs. So grab any mitzvah and do it. Because not only will that mitzvah be done, it will lead you to do other mitzvahs. You see? That's my advice. Any other questions? Great. Okay. Sounds like you're all ready for Yom Kippur. Is that Hashem? <laughs>